Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I actually think that maybe the most basic human function about which we have the least clarity of understanding, although there would be a lot of contenders for that title, is crying. It's like crying is something that's unmanly, except that athletes, male athletes, cry all the time. Tom Hanks is wrong. It's not that there's no crying in baseball. There's a lot of crying in baseball. It's also something that women do, except women get criticized for doing it in some instances. But, you know, when Hillary Clinton cried in New Hampshire, a lot of people sort of said, well, we kind of needed to see that aspect of her. It seemed mechanically suppressed somehow. So when it comes to crying, we don't know what we're talking about. And that includes this show, but we're going to try anyway. We're also going to talk about actual crocodile tears. I mean, the kind that come out of actual crocodiles. All that after the news. I want to hear the chorus because I like the chorus, but we got to get going here. We got work to do. Uh, and so um, today's show is about crying, first of all. And as a lot of you know, I understand almost everything. I process almost everything through movies and television. So when we first started thinking about a show about crying, one of my first thoughts is, was to the movie Broadcast News, in which crying is a really interesting kind of almost subplot as opposed to a subtext. Uh, The Holly Hunter character, a woman trying to make it in a pretty male-dominated profession of network news producing, has this little ritual habit practice, I don't know what to call it, but she'll arrange to be alone in a bathroom or in her own home or whatever, and she kind of looks in the window and, and she produces this kind of convulsive sob. And by the time you're done with the movie, you realize that she thinks she needs to do this at some point. But she also thinks she needs to do it not in front of men who may use it against her. Uh, that's never said. is a completely unspoken thing. There's no explanation or commentary ever offered in the movie about the fact that she's doing that. But then on, running on a parallel track is the William Hurt character, who's this kind of slick, charismatic anchorman. And uh, we see him ultimately interviewing a woman about a very emotionally fraught situation. They're sitting in chairs facing one another, and she's describing what happened to her. And he cries. A tear rolls down his cheek. Uh, and then they find out afterwards that there wasn't a camera rolling on him when that happened. And that's too bad. They lost that moment. And he says, oh, no, just put the camera on me. I can do it again. And he just sits there and he produces the tear. And you start to realize that you cannot trust this man. <laughs> you can't trust this man on a bunch of different levels, including the fact that he will put something on the news that isn't real. 
that was back decades ago when that was kind of, considered kind of a problem. <laughs> uh, but uh, but also you can't produce, trust somebody who can just produce tears on command like that. Um, the other movie that I thought of was Blade Runner. Uh, and, you know, there's that scene with Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty uh, near the end, and he's standing in the rain. Uh, and, and other streaks are clearly coming down his cheeks. And he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched as sea beams glittered in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain time to die. And he's a replicant and he's clearly producing something resembling tears and a whole big set of questions about emotions and humanity kind of get called into question right there. So with all of that, let's talk to the person who actually knows something and wrote something about that. Uh, the author of Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter, Benjamin Perry is with us. And hello, welcome to our show. Hey, Colin. Thanks so much for having me on. So, um, first of all, it's a great book, and it kind of does what we like books to do on this show, which look at something from uh, a lot of different perspectives. I should say Benjamin Perry is a minister at Middle Church. uh, And this begins with a little sort of personal anecdote of yours, which was you went through a period where you either couldn't or at least didn't cry, and you started to wonder whether that was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you started the show talking about tears in fiction, because one of the the really interesting things I see in the way that authors and filmmakers use tears in the stories they tell is to mark periods of transformation. Mm -hmm. The tears often happen at these pivotal moments where a character is changing and the creator is using the tears to show this outward manifestation of an inward transformation. And when I look back on my own life, I, I see that play out actually in my own emotional reality. So, yeah, from the time I was in sort of late middle school, maybe fifth or sixth grade, all the way until when I was in seminary in my early 20s, I didn't cry once. And I had a professor in seminary who invited us to reflect on the last time we had wept as part of a classroom exercise. And I realized that I just didn't have any memory that I could attach to to this incredibly core human experience beyond, you know, some early childhood ones. And, uh, yeah, it was this, this moment that cast in stark relief that there was something inside me that had broken. And it's what started this absurd six-month experiment where I forced myself to cry every day to try to recover something that I had lost. So there's a lot of things going on when we cry, and you cover all of them, really. But there's some things biologically uh, that go on when we're crying. I was fascinated to know that the the tears that we might just express as a physical reaction are different from the tears that we express as a, an emotional reaction in terms of their actual chemical, chemical composition. Tell us about that. Yeah. So that research comes from this guy, William Frey, who published this book in the mid-80s called Crying the Mystery of Tears. Uh, and for that one of the things that he did was he had participants, you know, throw an onion in a wearing blender and, you know, cry those chemical tears that you cry after, uh, you know, chopping onions. And he compared the chemical composition of those tears to tears he collected by watching, uh, by making folks watch Brian's song. <laughs> and then he would, you know, collect the tears that uh, that people cried watching that movie. And he compared the the two kinds of tears, both emotional tears and physical tears. And what he found was that the protein concentration in emotional tears was about 20% higher. And that specifically, the kinds of proteins that were present in higher levels in emotional tears than the rest of the bloodstream were neurotransmitters that are frequently linked to stress. And so his uh, hypothesis was that the 
tear ducts were actually acting as an excretory function and collecting these proteins at a higher concentration from the, the brain, from the bloodstream, and excreting them through the eyes. So because we are a full-service radio show, uh, we <laughs> asked uh, Chef Plum uh, about this whole onions making us cry thing. So uh, these are the non-emotional uh, tears. Cat, this is A1. Okay, so first, let's talk why onions make us cry. Onions grow underground and can have all kinds of little small critters who want to snack on them. So as a defense, when the skin of an onion is broken, it spews these enzymes and a type of acid. And when these two combine, it forms a gas called propanthiol S-oxide. Yes, I know that's a big word for me, Colin. I know. I can't spell it. Don't ask me to. Anyway, when it reaches our face and it mixes with that water layer that protects our eyes, it turns into, get this, a sulfuric acid. Seriously, basically burning our eyes. So naturally, our bodies produce tears to make that burning stop. All right, so let's talk fixing the problem. You could wear goggles, but that looks insane. Can you imagine walking into a kitchen and everyone's cutting onions and wearing goggles? It feels like a terrible movie. Uh, you could cut them in a clear box with holes in it for your hands, but I mean, who has time for that? What I recommend? Put a lemon wedge in your mouth. I'm serious. Put a lemon wedge in your mouth while you're cutting the onions. It works, I swear. It's something to do with raising the acid level and maybe for me, just keeping my mind off the fact that I'm cutting an onion. Also, if you chill the onions in the freezer for a few minutes ahead of time before you cut them, it can slow that initial chemical reaction. And finally, if you do find yourself tearing up like the first time we all heard Taylor Swift's All Too Well, stop cutting and put your head in the freezer. It will make the crying stop immediately. Seriously, you'll look a little crazy, but the crying will stop immediately. All right, good luck, friends. And I'm going to go figure out how to get this Taylor Swift song out of my head now. See you later. All right, so a uh, useful advice uh, for, about that. But Benjamin Perry, um, you know, I, to, to me, one of the most interesting things to explore in your book and then to pr prepare for this show is just the incredibly complex and often paradoxical attitudes we have about crying, and particularly sort of in engendered in, in contexts. I mean, it, if in Plato's Republic, there's this whole thing where Socrates and somebody else, I forget who, they have this big conversation about all the crying in Homer, uh, in the Iliad. Because in the Iliad, the warriors cry all the time. I mean, when they're not fighting, they're crying. That's like the two things they really do a lot. And they're thinking, you know, this isn't really good, and men shouldn't do this, and we don't want our young men seeing all this crying. Maybe we should do like a tear-free edit uh, of the Iliad. But, <laughs> but I mean, and I think that goes on over and over again. We see that. Uh, I mean, I want to sort of divide this up into men and, women, men and women. With men, we're, sometimes that is a sign of weakness, but it's also paradoxically a sign of strength in a lot of, a lot of specific situations. I don't know. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think you bringing up the Iliad is a perfect example also of the way that that cultural reaction to crying has changed dramatically over time. And if you look at other ancient texts like the Bible or uh, something like Gilgamesh and some of the other uh, ancient religious epics that we still have uh, copies of, you'll see very frequently that people are crying as a sign of strength, as a sign of their passion, of their uh, willingness to feel deeply, their love for their friends. You know, Jesus famously weeps when Lazarus has died right before he raises him. There are all these stories that don't make any sense unless you understand that an ancient audience was looking at these stories as an example of tears being this sign of strength. Now, fast forward a couple thousand years. And what was really fascinating when I was, when I was doing the interviews for the book is I interviewed all kinds of people because I wanted this book to, you know, contain more stories about crying than I have in my own body. And what I heard 
was this seemingly universal refrain from all these different people I talked to that they had all the shame that they carried in their bodies around tears. But what was really fascinating was that the shame was coming from different places. So yeah, for men, I would hear a lot about, uh, you know, role models that they grew up with telling them that it wasn't manly to cry. There's a, a, a interview I love in my book, this guy who grew up on a West Texas ranch, <laughs> whose grandfather's uh, adage was cowboys don't cry. He would tell him that, you know, anytime he was starting to tear up, cowboys don't cry. Uh, but then I would talk to women and I would hear, you know, the same uh, discomfort with crying publicly because of the way that they would per be perceived as less professional or less competent. I would hear from you know, black folks talking about the ways that, you know, crying in largely white spaces would, uh, they felt affirm some of the prejudices that people already carried about, you know, black people being too emotional. Uh, you know, I heard from the children of first gen immigrants who talked about the way that their parents thought that crying just wasn't going to be tough enough in a, you know, in a world that had expected them to be very, very tough just in order to survive. And so even though all these people came from these different social, social locations, they shared this common experience of having this core part of their humanity suppressed. Yeah, and I, I think there's sort of a way in which at an abstract level, there are all these rules. And then in the real life, we react very differently to them. Yes, cowboys don't cry and, and you know, big athletes don't cry. And Tom Hanks famously says to all the women in a league of our own, there's no crying in baseball. But let's hear Mike Schmidt, the famous third baseman for the Phillies, give his attempt to give his retirement speech, A2 cat. <clears throat> Some 18 years ago, I left Dayton, Ohio with two very bad knees and a dream to become a Major League Baseball player. I thank God that the dream came true. So, Benjamin Perry, there's sort of a needle whose eye you can get through, right? If you're a man, there are situations where, I mean, some people did make fun of Mike Schmidt for that. But, but for the most part, if you're like a big, tough athlete or these days a politician in a lot of situations, you can cry and people think that's good. You're a human being. It's OK. You're a big, strong guy and you let us see you cry. Well, you know, and I think that the tide is actually turning a little bit more broadly. And so even though a lot of us still have this fear that we carry around, if I cry, people are going to react in a negative way. Most of the time when I talk to people or when I have you know, cried openly in my own life, that's actually not how most people respond. I think that when we cry openly, oftentimes it gives other people an invitation to own their own vulnerability, to you know, give people the, the privilege of crying second. Yeah, and, I, and I, 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 I found the same thing. I've cried really you know, openly blubbering twice on this radio show. And each time I thought, oh, my God, what are people going to think? Well, they either didn't think anything <laughs> or they thought it was fine. It was appropriate to be crying. At that and moment. they reached out and they said, oh, my God, I really needed that. I mean, the, the piece of that clip that you played that's so interesting to me is as you hear him start to cry, the other thing you hear is all of those cameras clicking mm -hmm. because there is such power in tears. And we know that on a deep visceral level. When we see somebody else crying, it changes the space. It's not the same as it was before. Right. So let's, I think it is different for women. It's got a, just a different for set sure. of blades to it. So I'm going to take you back. I'm, I think, quite a bit older than you are. I'm going to take you back to 1987. Uh, Patricia Schroeder, who had been thought of and had been sort of starting uh, to seek the nomination for uh, a presidential run on, on a Democratic ticket. 
had decided that she wasn't going to do it. Uh, this is this, uh, the speech she gave when she announced she was withdrawing from the field. This is a three cat. I could not figure out how to run and not be separated from those I serve. There must be a way, but I haven't figured it out yet. Summer's contacts were warm and wonderful. The spontaneity was terrific. And I could not bear to turn every human contact into a photo opportunity. Nor could I bear to be separated by people who were well-meaning, but trying to protect me. I would shrivel. So as crying goes, it's weird because I remembered that as like really extreme crying because the press, of which I was a part at the time, covered this as this instance where a woman politician really kind of broke down in public. Uh, and, and if you watch the clip, her husband is there saying, I need, you need to take a break, maybe just catch your breath or something. And and. <laughs> You know, it, and it was really seen as maybe this was a step backwards for women in politics, and some women political commentators and women politicians were saying that. Uh, it was also, is that how she's going to deal with Kim Jong-il Il, or whoever the tough guy was at the moment? Uh, and and that same kind of questioning came up a little bit decades later when in New Hampshire, Hillary Clinton cried, although that time it was kind of more like, maybe we needed to see that from her. Maybe we needed to see a human side of somebody who seems a little mechanistic sometimes. But women just pay a different set of prices and there are just a different set of valences. But I'd love to know your thoughts. Yeah, that, that Hillary Clinton clip was the, the first thing that came to my mind when you were playing the other. Because similarly, you know, if you remember back to the way that the press covered it, in your memory, you're like, oh my God, she must have been bawling given the huge fervor that was made over uh, her tears. But if you go back and watch that clip, it's like a tiny little tear starts to run down her cheek. Yeah. And even that, even that semblance of a tear was enough to create, I mean, people literally, uh, you know, met, uh, I forget which of the New York Times columnists offhand, but somebody actually asked that question verbatim. Uh, <laughs> is she going to cry around Kim Jong-un? Like yeah. That was an actual question someone was asking, like, this campaign stop was going to be the same as a negotiation with a dictator. I think and Maureen, so, I think, yeah, Maureen Dowd, maybe. Maureen Dowd, yes. Yeah, she might have reported that somebody else said it or something. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, and so I, I think that you have, you know, this very clear picture of the razor's edge on which women's tears fall. There's a, I did a number of interviews in the book with some uh, of my wife's former coworkers at a media company who all reported crying in this one stairwell in their office. And the office was so abusive that people were crying all the time, but everybody felt like they couldn't do it publicly. And so they would go to the stairwell and sometimes you would go to the stairwell and there would already be somebody crying there and you would have to go find somewhere else. But the thing that kills me is this was a company that was almost entirely women founded as an overt and explicit reaction to sort of male dominated media spaces. And yet you still have these very patriarchal paradigms that govern people's self-expression in that kind of place. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, many women do on average cry much more than men. They're, on average, most women are emotionally healthier, are more uh, able to talk about and put names to their emotions and have a better relationship with their tears. And yet in a workplace that has so often been uh, created in such a way that crying is implicitly a form of weakness, whereas, you know, yelling and anger is a strength, 
you have these emotionally healthy people who are forced to suppress a core part of their humanity in order to fit into a paradigm that ultimately doesn't serve anybody. Right. Uh, so I'm going to read you a, a quote from what we polled our listeners a lot on social media about this. We got an email from Lori saying, uh, there should be more public crying. We should be able to go out shopping and see people crying because the store is out of mayonnaise. We should be able to go to work and cry whenever the situation warrants it. Why? Because people wouldn't yell at each other so much if they cried more freely. Uh, yeah. Give me your uh, short thought about that. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the book actually started because uh, it was the beginning of the pandemic and I was watching them park morgue trucks outside my window. I lived right next to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in Washington Heights. And there were so many people dying that they didn't have enough room in the morgue. And yet, while all of this was happening, everyone was like, oh, it's time to get back to work, time to go back to the office. And it was this bizarre and violent juxtaposition between the overt and overwhelming suffering that I was physically watching, hearing sirens going all day, and this liturgy of normalcy that we were all, you know, enraptured and enthralled by. And so I, I wanted to write a book that would help invite people to name the grief that they were carrying, to help other people name theirs, to make some space to talk about all the pain that so often goes unmentioned. And I think that really, if we do talk about that kind of pain, the listener is absolutely right. But that's the first step towards unraveling some of the other emotions that we layer over our hurt, things like anger, because we're afraid of going into that painful place. Yeah. And I think also there's a way in which, and you, you write a lot about this, how crying also is a social signal to people that something is real, that something is, I mean, Obama crying after Sandy Hook is is a way of saying to the world, this is something that happened. It's real. It has significance. We should be reacting to it the way you react to a great tragedy. Yeah, it's humanizing in the fullest sense of the word. When someone tells you that thing that you're experiencing, you're not just imagining it. All the pain that you have been moving through, that isn't some, some figment of your emotional life that is tied to a real thing that has been happening. And the other piece that the, of the, the social, that humanizing force is that when we see other people cry, on average, we are moved towards care mm. and towards compassion. And that's an evolutionary thing. It's part of the reason why evolutionary psychologists believe we cry in the first place as a, a visible signal to solicit aid because humans are so based in these mutually beneficial, non-kin relationships. That's what makes us use, distinct. What's, what makes us unique and beautiful and wondrous is our ability to provide care beyond the people we are immediately related to. And crying invites that kind of collective response. So first of all, the book is wonderful. It's called Cry, Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. Benjamin Perry, my guest, is the author of the book. It's We've just scratched the surface of the stuff that's in there. I encourage you to get out there and read it. Meanwhile, we did ask our uh, listeners other questions about this, and we received this voicemail from Caitlin responding to our question about what made you cry recently. This is a forecat. My husband is currently on his first military deployment, and uh, it's been a little bit tough for us. And something that has made me cry is any time that I am driving into work and I hear a love song or just uh, any kind of song about a relationship, <laughs> something that didn't used to make me cry at all um, now makes me cry a lot. And uh, I've learned to try to avoid those songs because I don't want to show up to work with baggy, puffy red eyes. So, yeah, that's, that's all that I have. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
And we're going to take a break, and we will come back to have a conversation very specifically about music and how it makes us cry. Be seeing you in every lovely summer's day in everything that's light and gay I'll always think of you that way I'll find you in the morning sun and when the night is blue. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading edge, life saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When Peter Pan came to my house, took my hand I said I was a boy, I'm glad he didn't check I learned to fly, I learned to fight I lived a whole life in one night We saved each other's lives out on the pirate deck And I remember that night when Leaving a late night with some friends And I hear somebody tell me it's not safe Someone should help me I need to find a nice man to walk me home When I was a boy I scared the pants off of my mom So if people can see me sitting in the studio I'm actually sort of I've got my head cranked down and I'm kind of stamping my foot feet so I won't cry. <laughs> and and the last time this song was used on the show, it's a song by Dar Williams, whom you're about to hear from. Uh, the last time this song was used on the show, and I cannot remember the subject of the episode at all because we've done several thousand shows, but we played the song and I said in advance, this song often makes me cry, thinking I could probably hold it together live on the air. And I just turned into, it was a really bad one. I just... I blubbered on the air, and I was kind of talking like that the way you talk while you're crying. Uh, it, it was bad. Well, uh, but one thing that I've learned is it's the end of the song that makes me cry, so that's why we are fading it right now. So Dar Williams, with that fairly psychotic-sounding uh, preamble, uh, I, first of all, I'm very excited to talk to you, as I assume is clear at this point. I'm a big fan. Um, could you just say a little bit about the idea of people crying from your songs? I get the feeling I'm not the only person who has this reaction. No, it's a, an interesting, I think it's a, a recognition thing. I think that moment of like, oh, I thought I was the only one or 
something like that is, is what happens. Or I'm reminded that I'm not the only one because sometimes people cry, you know, over and over again when they go to people's <laughs> concerts and hear that sound, that same song. So I just, I think that basic recognition, I think in general, I think maybe a lot of the answers I would have to all questions about crying is that it gets to something very basic. And I think music, you know, is really a great vehicle for getting the basic you know, sense of connection out there. Yeah, um, my guess is it's not just one thing. And uh, first of all, I think uh, there's also a Pavlovian association that kind of gets going. Dar Williams's voice has made me cry once. Uh, mm-hmm. Now when she <laughs> sings The Babysitter's Here or she and Joan Baez sing You're Aging Well, or, I, I'm, I'm in danger of crying again just because I think I've now, you know, instead of salivating for a cracker, I cry when I hear your voice. Uh, but it's Pavlovian nonetheless. And, and so I think there's that. And I think also, to your point, quite a few of your songs, particularly that song and The Babysitter's Here, they're located in our childhood. Uh, and our childhood is something we have a lot of trouble accessing through any kind of deliberative conscious thinking. You can sort of remember a thing, but you can't feel it. But for me, at the end, there, I, <laughs> I don't even want to talk about this because I might start crying. But the guy says, you know, I was a girl and I could talk to my mom and I could cry and things like that. And to me, that's what gets me. It's a set of feelings that I don't have access to any other way. That is a great thing about music. Yes. And and that's, I mean, frankly, I think we all hope for that, that thing where something just is so wonderful that it, it I mean, it, it has such a direct access to your, your feelings that you just cry. You know? <laughs> it's so direct. And I, it's one of my favorite things about being a musician and hearing music. So I'm assuming this happens to you. Well, first of all, does it just happen to you? Let's talk about the two ways it can happen. One of them is just while you're listening, and the other one is maybe while you're trying to sing one of somebody else's songs. Let's let's talk about the first one, just listening you know, quietly to music. Does music move you to tears on a frequent basis? You know, yes. I mean, it, it, it's probably the, the way that I find myself crying the most. But I actually, as I get older, I've noticed that it can be a, something very unexpected can do it. And it can just be in, you know, stories and things that I recognize. The general connection to the world is sparked by a bunch of things. But I used to, you know, people have said to me and I've said to other people, when I need to cry, I know that I can go to your song. <laughs> um, and actually, I covered two of them that made me cry. <laughs> I had to control myself to record them. But it was great to say to Kat Goldman, you know, the song Weight of the World not only made me cry, but it was a, a moment where I actually opened my heart in such a way where I continued to want to keep on performing for other people. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, music has definitely been some of the most powerful, but I'm, I'm sort of intrigued and excited about the fact that a lot of different things make me cry that I can't expect. <laughs> yes. Well, as I, I think I might be a little bit older than you, and I, it's only going to get worse or better depending on how you, <laughs> you process it. But uh, yes, you'll be finding that, you know, bank commercials make you cry. And I, I also – well, first of all, you also have to tell us – you told us one of the two songs that you've recorded that could conceivably make you cry. What's the other one? The other one is Family by Pierce Pettis. That one is um, – it's very simple. The chorus says – Let your love cover me like a pair of angel wings. You are my family. You are my family. Let your love cover me. 
people it's um it's very simple and it's a real surrender it says you know i'm giving my i'm giving my heart to you right now you're my family and i don't know what that is but i had to (laughs) we had to cut a lot of times so i could control myself to record it yeah, and I think also, you know, I just got done with a show where the, I wound up uh, – we we had a poem by John, Dono, John O'Donohue, the Irish poet at the end. And it made me think of something that he said uh, on a radio show with Krista Tippett. He said, music is what language would love to be if it could. And, and I think, you know, we can't really unbraid – this lanyard of music and lyrics. I mean, I think it's quite possible that the words to When I Was a Boy could be sung to a different tune um, and maybe by a different singer and have very little effect on me. There's, it, this is really a thing where two or three aspects, the words, the music, and, and the voice come together, mm-hmm. right, and, and do a kind of alchemy that, that you can't really – you can't just isolate the words is what I'm saying. I totally agree. And I think ideally what happens is, um, you know, there's this interplay between the music and the lyrics as you're writing something. And, you know, I I lead a songwriting retreat and I talk about what I call the voice of the song. And the ideal is sort of that you're listening to, you know, what the feel of those words and what the rhymes and the general language register is. And you're letting that inform the music or you hear something cool in the music and you let that inform what lyrics you're writing so that at the end you have a song where the music and lyrics are in that relationship with each other, you know, plus you sing it in your voice's range (laughs) so that to be a little bit more mellifluous, you know, and and then you can speculate that, that, you know, this song was sort of just meant to be as is. You sort of listen, you create and listen at every point of, of writing it. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, there's that old adage about how country music is three chords and the truth. Uh, mm. and, and I think that, you know, no matter what it is, what we're creating, whether we're writing a song or a poem or a novel or anything, getting to the truth of something is maybe the main job. And when we get there, probably when you write these songs, you're thinking, yes, this is true in some way that I can't necessarily explain, but this is true. It might surprise you to find out how it will affect someone else emotionally. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming you don't finish these songs and go, well, people are going to really cry when they hear that one. <laughs> no, no. It, it, it's a complete mystery at this point. And it's also it, – it's, it's different for other people. I, I have a song called The Christians and the Pagans. Oh, yeah. And someone came up to me and he'd just been at a march. Somebody had been – a gay young man had been beaten up. This was in the mid-90s, and there was a vigil in March for him in Philadelphia. And the next day, this this young man came to my concert, and his friends led him <laughs> backstage. They were all sort of teary-eyed. But he was he said, I'm, I am sobbing queer boy. And he said, to hear the Christians and the pagans and to know that your introduction to the song is about, you know, sort of this new holiday with all of the Christmas trimmings plus the arrival of the young lesbian relatives and to be in this community that sort of sees this this page turning was very emotional for me. And, you know, and I got a sense that it always will be. So, um, you know, it, it, those things happen too, where you find yourself situated in history, you hear a song and it gives you 
again, it, it, I think it gave him a kind of a hope, and that brought tears. Yeah, I mean, I'd forgotten about that song, and that's, that has made me cry, too. Uh, I'm going to sound like a blubbering idiot here. but um, no. and And I think it's because also, that's a very sneaky song, Dar, because it sounds out, <laughs> starts out kind of funny, right? Here's these Wiccan lesbians who are showing up at their much more traditional Christ-loving uncle's house, and... Um, and then it really just become a whole song about family and about celebrating together and what's really important and kind of looking past individual doctrinal and identity differences. And that's a very clinical sounding way of saying it's a very, very warm and powerful song at the end. And you kind of trick us into thinking this is going to be a funny one, which it is. But then you pull another string. And yeah, I can I can get why people might be crying. Um, that's a lovely expression. I pull another string. I yeah. think that's the other thing. And that string is just like that string in a chord that just makes that one kind of straight ahead major chord just a little bit different, one that plays on your brain chemicals a little bit differently. And, and in this, and in that case, you know, in a lot of songs, there's this kind of a, a an aha moment, a where are we going, what's really happening here. And I realized what was really happening was that there's things that we do in families that are actually a microcosm, you know, so the, the last line. Lighting trees in darkness, learning the ways from the old, and making sense of history and drawing warmth out of I, was, I had to write this thing like overnight for a radio fundraiser. <laughs> but I was like, oh yeah, see that? It's not just about a dinner table. And I think that's what people said that they've responded to is that I kind of put in that the larger thing at the end because not when families get along that, you know, worlds can get along. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. So um, if you are in a live setting, and I assume you don't cry from your own songs based on what I'm hearing, but maybe you're covering one of these other songs that makes you that might make you cry. Are you a kind of person? Can you sing through that? Can you sing while you're crying? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, so that's good. I once, once or twice, you know, I have a song called "The One Who Knows," mm-hmm. and it's you know about wanting to be there for your kids in a in a really supportive and not smothering, judgmental way. And you know, I was saying it once the summer that my son was going to college. You know, sue me, <laughs> <laughs> and that I was I felt that coming on, but I you know suppressed it. And once I was singing a song called Oh Canada Girls, um, mm-hmm. and I was in Canada, and I was just feeling all that energy, and I almost had to stop. And no, it's, it it uh, tightens your throat, so you're 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 screwed. Yeah, you your cry. your crying <laughs> muscles and your singing muscles are very much at odds with one another. Although there <laughs> exactly. are people go and watch this afterwards if you want. But I mean, Bernadette Peters kind of famously can cry and sing at the same time. And there's a clip of her in particular live and in concert. And I think it's not too long after her husband died. I think maybe in like a helicopter crash or something. And she's singing mm-hmm. the Sondheim tune, "Not a Day Goes By," and and she mm-hmm. just starts to. She's you just could see on her face and everything that she's crying. And yeah, the the timbre of her voice changes a little bit, but she mm-hmm. sings the crap out of the song. Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> you know, I, that's a skill. And and you know what? I think that would be awesome because you know, for audiences to know how immediate it is for the artist is and in that cathartic way, you know, not that they're that's a big rule that you people don't like to see people in actual pain on a stage. But to see, you know, that happening in the moment for her 
must be. But I think that, you know, those Broadway people, they're just so good at that stuff. Right. Um, I have yet to master it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it is kind of priced into the performance. Although watching that in particular, and I talked to her not too long after that, I mean, I think it is – they know how to inhabit a role. And, and if the role – if the mm. person in that role mm. is crying, that they, may, they can do that. But here she's clearly mm-hmm. just crying for her own reasons. And I, I, I thought it was startling that she could do it but uh, and, and still mm-hmm. sing like that. But I guess the, maybe one of the, my final questions here – we're talking to Dar Williams, by the way – is – if you look out into the audience, and I know a lot of the time you can't really see the audience if the light is on your face, but if you look out and see people crying, I don't know. Talk a little bit about how that feels. You're singing, you're sharing, you've written something that you really do hope, I, I assume, will reach people. What's it like to see them out there crying? You know, you just actually hit on something. That's probably the closest I've ever come to crying is mm-hmm. when I see somebody crying in the audience. I just, I'm pretty empathic <laughs> and so I think a little part of my brain's like oh no 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 don't look at that person um but it's a really I have to say it's very affirming you know or and or I've seen people on every song you know not even the ones that are the most uh you know sentimental holding hands you know just quietly they're like both staring and I just see these two hands sort of wander towards each other uh and and I feel like that's been a great, that's effective. You know, they're sort of in, so in the music and their bond is so much, you know, linked to hearing music together that they sort of automatically hold hands in the front row. Things like that, that show that we have all gotten to that place, you know, that is beyond the sum of its parts are as good as, it, you know, as what any performer <laughs> aspires to. I love hearing after the concerts that people have <laughs> cried. <laughs> and that's why I go out and sign CDs so I can hear that. Yeah, I think also there are different styles to all of this too. I mean, cabaret performers in particular, they kind of – know that i mean part of the part of their job really is to connect to the emotions of uh, of a song there was a wonderful singer who died kind of young nancy lamott who anytime i hear her sing like a you know a rogers and hammerstein song like i have dreamed or something it, she just knows that that's what they do i actually went to a cabaret conference uh one time for all the 35 singers came together to get more instructions and when they weren't going to the conference they were just like lying around the campus we were on just crying and <laughs> having these kind of <laughs> These kind of That's, yeah, go ahead. Folk singers, folk singers aren't so far off from that. And I had a theater background, so I really love all the those parts. I, I would say I was not the greatest actress, but I do understand, you know, those the ways that you can try to really be inside the song, the characters, the story, the moment that you're singing it, all of those things. You know, like pulling in all those elements so that you're there. Yeah. <laughs> you're really there. But yeah, we have a lot to learn from those songs and from those performers. All right. So I'm being told by the producer that we have to wrap things up. It has been a privilege. And thank you so much for the music. Thanks for all of these songs. They've been so wonderful and certainly for decades now have been a part of my life. So Dar Williams, thanks for being here. Thank you. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole idea. That was totally manipulative on my part. Uh, thanks, all right. Bye bye.
Follow The Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to or following our podcast on any podcast app. It's free. You don't have to wait an hour after eating before you go swimming. That's just something our mothers believe. Back to the show. All right. The technical producer of this episode was the very great Cat Pastor. Our senior producer, Lily Tyson, is the producer of this particular episode. And you're about to hear something that's now called in the world of national public radio, the Lily Tyson Pivot. They're teaching it in the schools now. So there's a term, crocodile tears, and it's been around a long time. And the idea that crocodiles cry when they eat, crocodile tears, in case you don't know the trope, means essentially insincere tears, and it's based on the idea that when crocodiles are eating something, they're, they're crying, uh, which they obviously are not grief-torn over, probably. But it goes back to antiquity. It shows up in 4th century BCE stuff, Greco-Roman sources, Egyptian sources, and then all the way through history. Uh, sometime around 1400, there are these uh, the explorations of Sir John Mandeville, I think is his name. Uh, and and he describes these, these cockroach-drills who are serpents who chew up men and they, they they are weeping while they do it. And this so the idea's just been around a lot, so much that you kind of think it couldn't be made up. Except in the 20th century, a lot of scientists started saying, what if it is made up? What if it's just a bunch of alligator poop? Uh, and that is where, in fact, our guest steps in. Uh, Ken Vliet, uh, recently retired from his position as coordinator of the laboratories at the University of Florida, is an ex- expert in crocodilian biology, and he decided... Uh, to to kind of find out a little bit more about this. So first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Colin. And first, we should also say it was actually kind of a, a crossover concern about human patients, right? There's a kind of facial palsy uh, where patients can involuntarily shed tears while they're chewing. And the question was, did this have anything to do with crocodiles, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I was working with a fellow from uh, UCLA named Malcolm Shainer, and uh, he's interested in this crocodile tears syndrome uh, uh, in humans in which they involuntarily cry when they're drinking or eating and um, and that got him interested in the in, in this anecdotal no- notion of crocodile tears and so we started uh, looking into this this was a study we did m- many years ago actually um, and uh, I worked closely with a, a zoo in uh, Northeast Florida called the St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park, which is a fantastic place for crocodilians, which is the sole focus of my research. And um, they had a lot of animals that, uh, that were trained to um, take food from keepers, allow close uh, approach to the animals. And so we went over there and fed alligators and caiman uh, and observed them closely, videotaped them, uh, so forth, looking for the possible presence of tear production as they ate. Right. So we should say harder to uh, specifically study crocodiles because they eat underwater. So hard to tell whether there's any extra moisture in their eyes. But when it comes to studying uh, prandial lacrimal ebullition, as most people call it instead of crocodile tears, uh, you you did it uh, with these alligators. And, and it did seem – well, it didn't seem. It was it – was pr- almost universally present here that there would be a kind of bubbling in the eyes, right? Yeah, we we had because the animals were trained, we fed them on land. Right? They prefer to eat in the water because 
the the water helps them swallow their food. Uh, but uh, we fed them on land so that we would be able to see any tear production if it did occur. And we saw it in most of the animals that uh, that we looked at. Uh, and in in and sometimes this appears simply as you might imagine a little small droplet of liquid coming out of the corner of the eye and just kind of trailing down the side of the snout. Uh, but if the animals are uh, agitated, uh, either by our presence or by the presence of other crocodilians near them, they'll often hiss. And, um, and when you're feeding them and they start hissing, they'll often uh, blow bubbles out of the corner of the eye, which is the, the liquids of, you know, that coat the eye. Uh, just getting air blown into them, which which seems odd, but um, in in reptiles and in in birds, um, the the glandular secretions of the eye typically exit through what's called a lacrimal duct, and our lacrimal duct uh, is is where our tears are formed. But in in the case of these animals that actually empties out into the nasal sinuses within the snout of the animal. And, um, uh, and so if you see anything, you normally see some liquid coming out of their nose or they, or you, if they snort, you might see a spray of liquid coming out of their uh, nostrils. Uh, but in this case, when they were feeding and they started hissing, that air would back up through that duct and cause the liquids uh, forming in the corner of their eye to kind of bubble up. And it made it quite easy to see when when they were doing it, uh, um, uh, when we were right close to them. So the moral of the story is they're not sad and they're not pretending to be sad. We should also say that you're not the first person to try to study this, although my favorite person was the scientist who, uh, in, the, in the past century, I think around 1972, decided to determine this by rubbing onion and salt into the eyes of crocodiles. Of course, that would be the famous scientist George One Hand Johnson. Don't do that with crocodiles. In fact, don't don't do any of this. This is one of these don't try this at home, kids, uh, kind of experiments. But uh, it, this has been fascinating. Ken Vliet is recently retired from his position as coordinator of laboratories at the University of Florida. He is an expert in crocodilian biology, uh, and we hope you are an expert now in crying as well. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more. Some special case, time or place to forget etiquette. For example, one positively must not wear a pleased expression on his countenance when confronted with that large lizard-like amphibious reptile who has long jaws, armored skin, and webbed feet, and who is known as the crocodile. It has been discovered that one simply cannot cherish an amicable or trustworthy relationship with the aforementioned species. In addition, it is mandatory that one does not become irresistibly drawn into the erroneous belief that the lateral upward extension of his lips means that you are entirely welcome. It is much more reasonable to assume that he is contemplating how you would look in a lizard suit. His. <laughs> Clear the aisle and never smile at Mr. Crock. Uh, uh.